Shut up and sit down. The spice must flow. Welcome to Popcraft, where we'll autopsy the screenplays behind your favorite films and TV shows. I'm your host, Carl Albert. Sorry for missing last week. Uh, life got in the way. Halloween craziness. You know, I actually I was really excited about doing a horror movie analysis, another one, but unfortunately we had to take the week off. But we're back this week with something a little different. It's going to be part one of my analysis of Dune. Now this week we'll be focusing on how Dune, the 2021 movie directed by Denis Villeneuve, adapted a book that many said was unadaptable. And next week, I'll return with some friends, some fellow screenwriters, to talk about the rest of the craft of the excellent, what some are even calling a masterpiece of cinema, Dune Part 1. Now, before we get too deep into the sand dunes of Arrakis, I do want to thank our first two patrons, Hannah Shashelsky and Austin Fickman. Yes, Hannah is indeed the guest on the show, my girlfriend. So yes, thank you to my sugar mommy for becoming a $10 patron to PopCraft. Please consider donating to yourself. As the foremost screenwriting podcaster in my apartment, I'd greatly appreciate your pennies. Every episode takes a great deal of time and effort to produce, and I'm actively bleeding cash. Your donation would help me pay for the hosting fees, help me buy better equipment, provide video for the show, and prove to my mother that she's not the only one who's proud of me. And that's just the beginning. As a patron, you'd get access to exclusive premium content. You catch my drift. So please be my sugar daddy, my sugar mommy or parent or pimp, however you'd like to identify, and consider donating to Popcraft Patreon, which will be linked below. Otherwise, leave a review Tell your friends and families, and enjoy the show. So, Dune Part 1, written by Denis and John Spates and Eric Roth, at least most notably. It's an interesting movie because it is unusual in that it's a part one of a story. It's certainly not a complete story unto itself, although it has an arc of a kind. But it is also structured in sort of a classic three-act narrative, and it has a very classical, tragic plot to it that I think is very familiar in a way. I think it, it, it ties into something very base inside us. If you listen to last week's Parasite, that even with how unusual Dune is, there is something very universal about its story, I think, which is why it's connecting to people. To get to that level of Shakespearean drama, Shakespearean tragedy, let's jump right into the plot. We open the movie with an expository sequence, a lot like the one that opens Fellowship of the Ring with uh, a woman. In Fellowship's case, it is Galadriel, of course. In Dune, it is Zendaya's character, Chani. These are characters who don't feature that heavily into the movie or into the plot, but whose presence are definitely felt throughout much of it. And they lay the groundwork, the foundation for the movie and the world, frankly, as a whole. In Fellowship, we get exposition about the forging of the One Ring. And in Dune, we get exposition about the planet Arrakis and the Spice. The Spice is the MacGuffin around which the whole plot turns. It is economically important to the Galactic Imperium. It is also uh, quite literally 
bound to the lives of many of the people in the Imperium. You know, the addicts who rely on Spice for their powers, for their actual life. And then we also get to meet the Fremen, who are the primary culture in Dune and sort of our underdogs in the story, as well as we come to understand the evil of House Harkonnen through their relationship with the Fremen, through how they tyrannize the Fremen. And this opening ends with a line that I think a lot of people look past, a line that really gets to the crux of what Dune, not only as a book, but as a book series, is all about. Where Chani asks, after House Harkonnen has left Arrakis, who will our next oppressors be? We then meet their next oppressors. I mean, first of all, a very clean, simple transition, a lovely transition. We meet Paul Atreides, the messiah to be, the young son of Duke Leto Atreides, an heir to his house. We meet Paul in a scene that is not actually pulled straight out of the books. It is mentioned in the book, but the movie opens with several scenes that establish the world and the characters and their relationships before we actually get to what actually uh, happens at the start of the novel, Dune. In Paul's opening, we see him dreaming of Chani. We then go to him having breakfast with his mother, the Lady Jessica, and we get an idea of their relationship that, you know, there is an intimacy, but that there's also this coolness, that there is a level of their aristocratic lives that creates uh, a distance between them that, you know, perhaps there's not as much trust as there should be, that, you know, there is that questioning, can they trust one another? And we get the idea that Lady Jessica is training Paul in some sort of pseudo-scientific, pseudo-magical powers, the voice, and we see the burden placed upon Paul, that he must rise up and be this leader that he, throughout the film, is hesitant to become. It is in that that we get Paul's arc for the film established, his hesitation to act, his hesitation to lead. It's made very clear through this scene and a later on scene where he has a conversation with Leto that he is hesitant to be the Duke, to be the Lisan al-Gaib of the Fremen, to really take charge of things in general. And I, I think it is actually a flawed setup, and we'll get to that later on. But again, we're, get, we're getting kind of a foundation for who Paul is to an extent. We are coming to know his mother, um, that she is talented and, and controlled, and the consort of the Duke Leto, who we meet in the following scene, that really sets the tone for the rest of the movie. It is slow, it is tense, and unsettling, almost like a horror movie, or a, a thriller at least, that we have the Emperor's Herald arrive and announce that Arrakis has been given from House Harkonnen to House Atreides, and we meet Leto in this act, and we see him as this inspirational figure, this charismatic figure, this, this figure who's bound by honor, but who can sense, but not quite identify, that something is wrong, that perhaps Arrakis is a trap, and that he doesn't quite know how to handle the threat that is surrounding him. Leto's great flaw, what ultimately leads to his demise, is of course his sense of honor and uh, almost a Ned Stark type of naivete. That's not to say that he's not uh, a heroic figure, but it really is crucial that we meet him, I think, in this ceremonial setting. It's, it's a great uh, scene that is not in the books and a, a great showing of a adaptive license that 
really that it embodies what Leto is. Leto's a symbol in the story more than he is even a person. We we do get a level of humanity to him in this movie, and I think Oscar Isaacs uh, really elevates the role. But Leto is a symbol to the Imperium. Uh, that's why people are beginning to love him, is he's very charismatic, and that's why the Emperor feels threatened by him and wants to put him in this trap. But he's also a symbol to his son, Paul. And so he becomes this symbol to us. He becomes something concrete that we as the audience can latch onto, you know, that we, we want to care about in the same way that in Game of Thrones, we, we want to care about Ned Stark pretty much from the get-go because there is this stability about him, this sense of goodness and nobility, both in the, the literal sense that he's an aristocrat. So there is that sort of escapist power fantasy, but also that he has a goodness inside of him, an inherent sort of moral fortitude and strength. And from there, we get some more character introductions. We come to understand Paul's dreams better. Uh, we come to understand his relationship with Duncan Idaho and also his uh, fighting mentor, Gurney Halleck. We see Thufir, Hawat, and we meet, of course, Dr. Yue, who I will touch on in much more detail in a little bit. But ultimately, we're building up to what is my favorite scene in the movie and what I think is the most crucial scene in its first act. What is, in fact, the opening scene of the novel Dune, Paul's testing with the Gom Jabbar, his suffering at the hands of the Reverend Mother of the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood, Gaius Helena Mohayim. This scene is not only masterfully shot, masterfully edited, it is masterfully structured and placed in the film. You've established this dynamic between Paul and Jessica. You've established Paul's hesitance to lead. Established that, you know, he's still a teenager. He's still growing up. And you establish their love, but also the, their distance. And now you cement that. Now you cement the conflict between mother and son by having Jessica effectively betray her own son to the sisterhood. This becomes a question throughout the Dune series as a whole, and I hope that's not really a spoiler, but that so long as Jessica is in the series and so long as she and Paul interact, the, the question of Jessica is always, is she loyal to House Atreides or is she loyal to this Bene Gesserit? And in this scene, she betrays House Atreides, or specifically Paul, for the Bene Gesserit. At the same time, we see Paul tested truly, painfully for the first time with the Gom Jabbar, tested about whether he or not his human nature can overcome his animal instincts. Paul, in an epic moment, does in fact manage to overcome, to rise to the occasion, and to impress the Reverend Mother and show her that he may in fact be the Kwisatz Haderach. This is where the book chose to open, but this is not where the movie chose to open. Now again, I want to clarify why they did that. In the book, we have the opportunity to see into the characters' heads, to hear their thoughts. In fact, we hear every character's thoughts. It takes an omniscient narrative, a third-person omniscient narrative, which literally just means you can bounce around different characters' thoughts in a scene. So we come to understand them very quickly. We come to get a feel for who they are and how they relate to one another very quickly. We come to understand the exposition of the world very quickly and, and very bluntly, frankly. While in the movie you have to do a little more showing and a little less telling. A third-person omniscient is a very telly form of narrative. You, you quite literally tell the audience the character's thoughts. You are, quite literally tell them 
whatever exposition they need to know. Sometimes you can even predict the future and say, I mean, that's a thing that the Dune actually in every chapter in Dune has an epigraph or a little like poem or passage from a history book that previews the themes of the work or what to expect. And so we come to know the idea of the Lisan al-Gaib, the Mu'adib, the, the Messiah of the Fremen, before we even meet Paul in the Dune novel. However, in the movie, this is something we're going to come to learn gradually. Again, this is something that they're going to try to show us more than they tell us. It is, for people who don't know, uh, it's a thing you hear a lot, show, don't tell. And I imagine if you're listening to this podcast, you at least have an idea of what it is. But I, I, I do think people get a little mixed up and and about what it is exactly and I don't think showing is always necessary over telling and as I've said before I don't want this podcast to be prescriptive but Dune definitely prioritizes showing over telling we are shown Paul's relationship to his mother before we see that relationship tested by the reverend mother Gaius Helena Mohayim we are shown Paul's hesitance to lead before he is really tested in his leadership we are shown Paul's training with the voice, we're shown his relationship with his father, we're shown all of these characters and their flaws before they're challenged in the way that the book starts challenging them right off the bat. And it's really necessary in a movie to maybe pull back from the start of the book a bit, you know, set things 10 days earlier, two hours earlier, however much earlier you need to establish things, to establish a foundation for the story as a whole helping the audience to understand the background so that they can follow the movie as it continues. Exposition is another thing I really wanted to highlight in talking about how the novel was adapted to the screen because Dune basically fires on all cylinders when it comes to exposition because the world of Dune is so rich <laughs> and with, with the spice in the literal sense, but you know what I mean. Like literally, there's just so many details and it's clearly inspired so many people with with the depth and the complexity and uh, all the political intrigues and all the different sci-fi jargon of the world. There's just so much to throw at the audience at once. So they have to find all their different avenues they can to reveal this exposition to the audience, whether that is through showing it or occasionally telling it. You do have that one scene where, where Paul is sort of, and it's actually taken straight out of the book, where Paul is studying from a like a holographic sort of uh, almost like audiobook that speaks to him, that teaches him about the Fremen. You have it in the form of conflicts and sort of dialogue exchanges, like when House Atreides first arrives on Arrakis and you see the people screaming, Lisan al-Gaib, Lisan al-Gaib at Paul. And Paul's like, well, what the fuck are they talking about? And Lady Jessica has to explain to him, like, Oh, they, uh, the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood created this mythology, this prophecy about a Messiah that will come and rescue the Fremen and help them rise up, and you should take advantage of that, Paul. And so this exposition is hidden in this character conflict where Paul is like, I don't want to. They're, they don't actually believe anything that's real. They believe what they're told to believe. And Lady Jessica's like, well, that may be true but you can still take advantage of it. With how dangerous things are on Arrakis, you have to take advantage of it. And that is a lesson that is going to stick with Paul and that he's going to grapple with throughout the rest of the movie. Touching on something we talked about earlier, you show the audience the importance of House Atreides and sort of what they stand for in the ceremony of the Emperor's uh, Herald's arrival and announcement that they will now own and control 
Arrakis and the production of Spice for the galaxy. You get to understand how Spice works through its hallucinogenic effects on Paul. You get to understand the voice through seeing Paul attempt to use the voice. You also get that uh, little uh, bomb under that table, that little setup, that plant, for a payoff later on where Paul finally uses the voice perfectly and correctly to help save him and his mother amidst the attack by House Harkonnen. Something I do want to emphasize, too, is that oftentimes in these sci-fi and fantasy movies, it's not enough to hit a piece of exposition once. Like, especially if it's really crucial and important like the spice, you need to remind the audience over and over how important that spice is. So not only are there loads of scenes of characters arguing about the spice, you know, emphasizing how important it is to people, you know, whether it be Dr. Leah Kynes talking about it or, you know, seeing its impact on Paul getting that little, like, holographic book sequence explaining the spice and its importance to the Fremen, uh, learning about how the guild navigators use it. I mean, the the point is that you're, like, hitting on, firing on all cylinders, like, reminding the audience over and over, the spice is important, the spice is important. So if they take nothing else away, you know that they're going to take away. The spice is fucking important. The spice must flow. Beyond that, you know, another great way of doing it, and, and something that I noticed in the film, and I actually wish they did more often, is they used captions that use subtitles to clarify certain sci-fi words or words that actually have an arabic origin oftentimes in dune like the lisan al-gaib like the mahdi where you would have a character speaking in a foreign tongue an alien tongue and you would see you know the translation and so the audience would then have something concrete to hold on to that they would see oh they're not just mishearing some word you know lisan al-gaib isn't them talking about some lady named lisa you know, like it, it's it's an actual title. And as soon as it's used, you know, we see it in subtitles. And I wish with more of the sci-fi jargon, they actually would have done that. I think that would have helped clarify maybe for some people. I know a big critique coming out of the movie was that it was hard to follow and that uh, a lot of this, the sci-fi-ness of it all was hard to track, the world building, especially because, you know, it's not as simple as something like Star Wars where most of the world building that actually matters to the plot is just about the Jedi. So you have like one alien word to learn Jedi. And like the word Sith isn't used in the original trilogy at all. Like it's it's a very simple sci-fi underbelly for a very simple narrative. But Dune is much more complicated than that. And so I, I think you really have to hit on the exposition in as many points as you can, in as many different ways as you can, to not only keep it interesting, so it's not just, you know, people monologuing about spice over and over, but also, you know, to emphasize the importance of spice, to emphasize the importance of the Lisan al-Gaib, the importance of the Fremen people. A piece of world building that I think is actually crucial to not just the, the color of the story, but the plot itself and the, the narrative itself is the Fremen's relationship to water. Now, obviously, Arrakis is a desert planet, but I think the movie doesn't emphasize enough how important water is to the Fremen. You have the scene of Stilgar, who I fucking I loved in the movie, how he was adapted. It, it just felt like he was ripped straight from the book. He, he spits to the Duke Leto, and that is a tribute to Leto. He is giving Leto his water. And in turn, you know, Leto is encouraged to spit back at him. Uh, it's a very funny scene. It's really great. I love it. But I think it doesn't, it comes across as kind of a quirky little cultural thing more than like it in the books that same scene exists but it establishes and it hits home how much the water means to people there's a scene upcoming 
and it's a bit unclear if it actually happens in the movie or not. I've seen the movie three times now, and I'm still not sure when late, very late at the end of the movie, after Paul has killed Jamis, if he sheds a tear or not. But shedding a tear is a hugely powerful thing, a powerful act to the Fremen, because you are shedding your body's water for someone else. So it's not just about them being a very kind of cold-hearted, callous people. They literally don't want to shed their body's water because it's crucial to their survival. You know, you have the still suits that keep you recycling your own body's fluids in the desert. And, you know, they touch on it in the movie. And I, I think to some extent, you know, people intuitively understand if you're in the desert, water is important. But this is a huge cultural, like, touchstone for the Fremen. And I imagine we'll hit on it more in part two. And they'll talk about people shedding their body's water. They're shedding their blood. And that's something that I think they could emphasize a, a bit more. But again, going off of the culture of the Fremen, something, a great way to show, not tell exposition, is in the very end of the movie. That I think you get kind of an idea here and there of the Fremen people. You know, they're called savages, they're called whatnot. You see them as sort of commando warriors. You see that they have some code, but you really get a feel for them at the end of the movie when Paul and Jessica encounter them for the first time, where you meet Chani properly, where you meet Jamis properly, where Paul duels Jamis. Paul tries to make him yield, not only because he's never killed someone and is scared to do so, but because that's what he's used to. But to the Fremen, yielding, that's... You just don't do that. That's dishonorable. And so you come to understand so much about them through the conflict, the duel between Paul and Jamis about their code of honor. And that that is how they settle conflicts too. That Jamis tells Stilgar before all this happens, you know, you talk like a leader, but you're not the strongest one here. And the, and the leader is the strongest one here. And so he wants to prove his strength. That These are a martial people. These are people who value toughness, value strength. They're very macho, you know. This is not only important to helping you understand the Fremen in sort of just like a broad way, but for the narrative itself, especially what's coming in part two, to understand their violent tendencies and how that maybe could lead to uh, certain destructive impulses. So again, using conflict, character conflict, and it doesn't even have to be violent conflict like the duel between Paul and Jamis, but like I said, it could be a quick exchange like between Paul and Jessica about the what is the lease on Al-Gaib, Conflict is often the best way to show, or at least to hide to an extent, exposition. Another aspect of adapting a novel, especially a novel as dense as Dune, that's really important is translating the humanity of it. And this is a thing that, you know, I think is debatable, whether they succeeded as, uh, as much as they intended to, as much as they tried to. It is, in a lot of ways, a very cold story, even going back to the book, but there is a humanity at the heart of it and I think when you're in the characters heads that helps translate a lot of it in the book and in the movie they had to show us how the characters feel so these characters who are in the book are maybe masters of their emotion who control their emotions a lot you know I'll, I'll specifically talk about Lady Jessica who in the books is described as being able to down to a cellular level control how her body functions how she expresses emotion in the movie she certainly is a master of control. She never betrays emotion whenever she's in public. She always cries. You know, she cries a lot in the movie, but she cries in private, in these private moments when she can be vulnerable. This is not a thing that happens in the book. In the book, she doesn't. 
cry. I, I don't know if she cries more than once in the entire book, and it's 600 pages long. But in the movie, you see her cry a lot because you have to understand her vulnerability. And I mean, what a great performance. And to see that dichotomy of her being very cold with Paul in public during the ceremonies, and then to see her standing outside the door as Paul's tested, and to see her panicking and crying, and again, getting to the exposition that you get the fear is the mind killer. You understand her Benny Jesuit training by seeing her actively overcome her own fear, her terror, her, you know, I mean, it's it's a perfect reflection of what Paul is going through, where he's being tested to see if the human inside him can overcome the animal. And she, in that moment, overcomes her animalistic, her primal terror using her human intelligence. Another bit of humanity you see that the movie adds in is by developing Duncan Idaho more. He's, he's hardly a character in the first book of the Dune series, and his and Paul's relationship is alluded to but not really developed all that much. And Actually, I think that's a flaw with the book in general, but the movie really takes time to develop him, so when he dies, his death hurts. At least for me, it was a really a real Boromir moment, both in terms of, like, he just won't fucking die. Like, he keeps getting stabbed and fucked up, and he gets right back up and murders three more people. And uh, it's badass as fuck, but, like, the foundation for that, and I think, again, I keep talking about the foundation, how the, this movie is a lot of setup, and it does that setup expertly. And the emotional setup for Duncan Idaho and Paul is that relationship early on that you see them care about one another and then you see them you know when they reunite on Arrakis later hugging one another excited to see one another you see their love and so when Paul loses Duncan it hits us we understand that he's just lost a mentor like a big brother a friend likewise we understand Leto's and Jessica's relationship through their intimate moments just even the the slightest exchange of looks the the touches the caressed cheek the hand on a shoulder these are all little touches to establish intimacy and to establish heart amidst the movie because you don't have a very at least a very mainstream story you won't have a, a story that appeals to audiences at large if you don't have heart if you don't tug on people's heartstrings if you don't make them care about the characters and connect with the characters which gets to one of the criticisms I've seen of the movie and one I've actually thought a lot about, and that is in the way it is emotionally disconnected. It is cold. And some of this, I think, comes down to the score and how it's it's awesome and really unique and does create a mood, but isn't necessarily a very humanistic score. You know, it's not like a John Williams score that really like makes you want to cry or like makes you want to cheer just hearing it. it. It has this very unusual, very alien tone to it that I think is maybe a bit off-putting. But beyond that, I think at the crux of a lot of where people have struggled to emotionally connect to the movie is in the character of Paul Atreides. Paul is, in a lot of ways, a reactive hero in this first part. That will change in the second part, and I think is why a lot of people say the second half of the book is better than the first half. I don't know if I agree with that, but without touching on that second half, in this half, Paul is kind of bouncing around until the end of the movie. And his journey is actively about him choosing to act. He is hesitating to be the aristocrat, the duke that his dad wants him to be. He's hesitating to become the Lisan al-Gaib, the messiah of the Fremen people. He's he hesitating to grow up, to claim power, and to use it. I mean, that's really his arc in this movie is, 
will he use power or will he not? And ultimately, he chooses to use power. He chooses to become proactive at the end of the movie when he decides to duel Jamis, when he decides not to listen to his mother, but to follow the Fremen and go with them into their siege. The problem with this is people oftentimes, and again, I don't want this podcast to come across as prescriptive. Every story is different. But people, more often than not, struggle to connect to reactive, to inactive characters. They want their heroes to be proactive, to pursue a goal. Paul does not pursue a goal through most of the movie. Paul is just there. Paul kind of lets the winds of time tug him along. If anything, Lady Jessica is more active than Paul is. And tied up in that, because Paul isn't active, yes, we see his flaw and his arc established. We, we see if you like really intellectualize it, understand where he's supposed to go. But he isn't challenged in terms of his arc, you know, like things happen to him. He doesn't actively make things happen. So if you really think about the plot of the movie, most of it isn't challenging Paul to be like, well, are you going to be a leader? It's Paul existing and then Paul running for his life. Those are really the two things he does throughout the movie. And again, it's part one of his story. And I think the character of Paul will connect with more people um, in the second part. But I, I do understand where some people have struggled with his character. It was something that I chafed against because I, I know his arc at large. And this first part really is just setting up who he is and what his real overarching arc is for Dune as a whole narrative. But in this story, they frame it as the book does, that this part of the story is about Paul coming of age and Paul accepting his role as a leader. But he never pursues that. I mean, by definition, he has to be inactive. He has to hesitate to act, to grow in that way, to have that arc. And so it's maybe not the most interesting and, and doesn't necessarily make him... You know, he's a very introverted character too. Like, he doesn't have a ton of extroversion, a ton of... He doesn't have a very colorful, very loud personality. When you add all of that up, it can be hard to emotionally connect to his story where you don't really understand always what the character's thinking. You don't see them struggle in a very concrete, a very externalized way. Movies especially, you have to externalize the character's internal struggles. In a book, you can just sit there with a character and feel for them and feel with them as they think through things, as they suffer emotionally. But in a movie... You have to see things that externalize that struggle, that internal struggle, because you can't hear their thoughts. I mean, you could. You could theoretically do voiceover, and actually, David Lynch's Dune pursued that avenue, and I would argue did not work. It did not succeed. But it, that, that's a rare path for a movie to take nowadays. More often than not, you're going to find that movies, again, show, don't tell. Another thing that I think is a flaw in this adaptation is the character of Dr. Yue. And this really stands out to me as a fan of his in the books. Like he's actually, I think, one of the more interesting character in the Dune novel. He's the big traitor. He's literally known, like hit at on over and over again in the epigraphs of the novel as Dr. Yue, the traitor, the traitor Dr. Yue. But he's a very human character that everything he does is for his wife. And you get one or two lines about that in the movie but the interesting thing about the book's approach is he is that bomb under the table. As soon as you're introduced to Dr. Yue in the book, you know he's the traitor. You get his thoughts. You get him thinking about how he's going to betray this family, about what he's doing, what acts of subterfuge he's working on. While in the movie, he examines Paul, 
he's like actually he just examines him like twice like that's what he does and then he's the traitor he's revealed as the traitor when shit hits the fan and it's a twist you're like oh 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 it's dr yue but it's not like that impactful i mean it perfectly embodies the idea of suspense that i was talking about where hitchcock said that yeah if you just have the bomb blow up without you ever seeing it well that's a surprise but it's not ultimately that impactful as opposed to if you see the bomb planted and you just hear it tick slowly that sticks with you you know that leaves you predicting the future that creates suspense and that emotionally invests you in the story as opposed to just like surprising you briefly and in the movie you know it's a long movie so i understand that they had to cut things and i and i think there are things they cut which i'll get to that i i think as much as sometimes as a book nerd it pained me were for the betterment of the movie but dr ua i think needed at least one scene and they filmed a scene where he talks about his wife where you set up his motivations where you come to care as for him and see him as a three-dimensional human being before we see him as a traitor and if frankly if i had it my way you would see him communicating with the Harkonnens or something to show he's a traitor early on. I don't think the movie needs that twist. I think there are enough twists, just in terms of how many characters die. Spinning off into the notion of cut material, we have a lot of the politics in the novel. There is a dinner scene that is 99% politics. It's establishing and playing with the politics of Arrakis, the different economic forces at work. And... It's a really crucial part of the book, but it doesn't move the narrative forward. It doesn't really push the characters' arcs forward. It is a compelling scene. It's actually a scene I really love and would love to see on screen, but it didn't have to be there. And so in that way, it was very judicious to cut that from the movie. I don't even know if they shot that scene, but I don't think they needed to. And I'm sure the screenwriters realized that. It's just not necessary. And that's one of the most important lessons to take away for any adaptation is sometimes you just got to cut things. Dr. Yue, you know, as much as I think the movie would be better with more material, it didn't have to have it. I mean, Dr. Yue is not the, the, the core of Dune. He's just a cool side character who does some important acts. And he we see him do those acts. It's not like they cut the most important parts of him. We still understand his motivation and we still see him make those grand decisions to betray House Atreides, to save Paul's life amidst that betrayal. You have to know what's worth cutting and what's not, what is core to the narrative and what's not. And oftentimes, Hollywood people are a little cut happy. Some books can use a more broad adaptation, but oftentimes, and you'll hear this from book fans a lot, you know, where the adaptations go wrong is by cutting too much or changing too much. And Dune the movie clearly loves the source material. And I think that's something else to take away is like, you should care about the thing you're adapting. Don't just adapt something for the hell of it. Care, want to tell that story. Because if you want to tell the story, you're going to tell it better. If you care about the characters, you're going to tell their stories better. You're going to have an easier time relating to them and then putting that emotion on the page and then on the screen. So care about the story and yet don't be afraid to cut things from it where you have to. Think about the arc as a whole. What is necessary? What is the core of this story? What is this story about? What is it trying to say? And then hone in on that and trim out all the fat. Trim out the politics if the story isn't about politics. Get to Paul and his story. 
and his arc and his coming of age. Get to the Fremen and the betrayal and the family dynamics in House Atreides. And of course, get to House Harkonnen and their creepy-ass spider pet who didn't need to be there, but thank God it was there because, first of all, we have to clarify over and over again, House Harkonnen totally fucked up. Two, it's fucking awesome. It's a spider with hands. That will sit in my nightmare brain for the rest of time. Love it. 10 out of 10. Would watch that thing just live. Just just wander around in, like, fucking terrifying all the little creepy doe-eyed servants. I would watch a whole movie about that thing. Anyway, Dr. Yue cuts galore, cut what you must, and maybe keep some things if it's important. And so, in that respect, I hope there's a director's cut that is for the super nerds like me who want what could be that much closer to a perfect movie because, God, I really do think Dune Part 1 is a masterpiece and they did an amazing job adapting a book that many considered unadaptable. And the last little piece of that is, of course, the ending where they decided to end the adaptation. They end it with Paul walking out into the desert with the Fremen, which is like quite literally the halfway point in the book. So in that way, it's like kind of the lowest hanging fruit but i think there's a real narrative reason why they did that and it gets back to paul's arc that is the end of the arc they established in this movie that it's paul deciding to become a leader deciding to become a proactive hero and deciding to stand up and that's why they ended it where they did as chani said this is only the beginning and it was really that perfect turning point for Paul. Now, of course, if this was a singular movie, I think it wouldn't necessarily work as strongly, but it's a part one. The second part got greenlit, so it all worked out. You know, with a book as dense as Dune, you couldn't do it in one movie. People have tried. People have failed. I mean, God, the movie's two and a half hours long, and they still didn't fit in as much as, you know, I think they could have and should have. And now we're getting a second part that adapts the whole second half of the book. Anywho, that is... Well, at least a handful of thoughts about how they adapted Dune, the unadaptable novel. I'm sure I'll be back again when part two comes out. But in the meantime, you can look forward to part two of my podcast analysis next week, where I return with some screenwriting friends to talk about more things you can learn about the craft and the philosophy behind Dune. Please consider rating and reviewing this podcast, sharing it on social media, following me on social media linked below. I will include the PopCraft email linked below. Consider becoming a patron. All the different tiers have different rewards, but they all include bonus material, funny outtakes, stuff that just wouldn't fit into the episode properly, that sort of thing. Different tiers let you vote on what comes next, give you access to live streams with me, and even give you access to a raffle to see who will appear in a special episode of PopCraft. So again, consider donating to Patreon linked below. Thank you, as always, for listening. Let me know what you thought of Dune. Let me know, is there anything I missed? Am I a fucking moron? Until next time, I'm Carl Albert, and this has been PopCraft.